Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, January 8th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a reason that Donald Trump has approval ratings below 40%. He's a bad president. Yes, well, beyond that. He's also an ineffective communicator. He does not care to communicate to anyone beyond the 30-something percent that's already his base. In the absence of this, what might happen is that his surrogates, some of whom are professional politicians, used to having actually the majority of their constituents like them. So you'd think that his surrogates might go out there and perhaps try to convince the American people in, say, talk show appearances. But they cannot do that. That is not their aim. Because when they go on talk shows, they're not trying to talk to us. They're only trying to talk to him. Stephen Miller did it pretty famously and pathetically on Sunday. He was rightly called out by Jake Tapper. But it got a little less attention. But over on Meet the Press, Lindsey Graham did it too. And he did it pretty skillfully when he said this. I've enjoyed his company. He beat me like a dog. I said everything I know to say about him. I, I used every adjective on the planet. Mm-hmm. I lost. He won. And I feel an obligation to help him where I can. I've enjoyed working with him. I don't think he's crazy. Like a dog. He beat Lindsay like a dog, which is totally in keeping with how Trump thinks dogs work. Marco Rubio sweat like a dog. According to Trump, Glenn Beck and Eric Erickson were both fired like dogs. Mitt Romney choked like a dog. Trump said we should have backed Mubarak instead of dropping him like a dog. And of course, quite notoriously, he tweeted, Robert Pattinson should not take back Kristen Stewart. She cheated on him like a dog. Mark Cuban also was said to be thrown off television like a dog. But Lindsey Graham, he knows a little more about dogs. I read some of his biography. He writes, We used Fred Merck's beagles for rabbits. We did quite a bit of bird hunting, too, in season. Quail, usually. But I liked hunting rabbits best. I could do it for hours, tramping through fields and woods, up and down hills and all kinds of weather until Fred's dogs picked up the scent and jumped a rabbit. See, that's how dogs work, at least in Lindsay's biography. They help you hunt a rabbit. But then I began thinking about it. And I think Lindsey Graham's dog simile might have been a little too obvious. It was Lindsey Graham's version of blinking SOS with his eyelids or including a wild statement in a hostage tape to signal that it was made under duress. He is so obviously saying and yelling out loud, I'm wooing him. I'm trying to woo Trump, people. Even so, I do think it'll work. 
because Donald Trump picks up on nuance like a dog. On the show today, I spiel about a recently retired fixture of daytime television running for president, Philbin 2018. No, not Philbin. Oprah. I mean Oprah. But first, Michael Wolff's account of the Trump White House fire and fury has engendered just that from Donald Trump. Wolf is a habitué of the salons of the New York media elite. So I went to one of those salons. Turns out they're far dustier in the daytime. But what I found within was a prize. And he's here with us now. It's NPR's David Folkenflick. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Michael Wolff's new account of the life inside the Trump administration is causing quite a stir, quite a row, quite a rocket up the Amazon charts, thanks in part to uh, Donald Trump and the Trump administration's insistence on giving it tons of publicity. So what he reported was, in broad strokes, stuff we probably knew. The president's incurious, unqualified, and possibly dangerous. Now, there are errors in the book. A mic becomes a mark. Ages are wrong. In one instance... Rupert Murdoch is quoted as calling Donald Trump a fucking idiot. But in an earlier quote from that exact same instance, Michael Wolff said that Rupert Murdoch called him a fucking moron. What is it, idiot or moron? The name of that book is Fire and Fury, but I give you what you've been waiting for, Fire, Fury, and Folkenflick. I'm joined now by David Folkenflick, NPR's media correspondent. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing fine. Hopefully neither moron nor idiot, uh, but I <laughs> no. do my best for you, sir. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, if you if you can reach the heights of imbecile, which is, I believe, in between mor- moron and idiot, I will look it up on the actual definition of IQ charts. So what I want to really talk about in this interview is Michael Wolf, and he is, you know, sometimes described, well, if you listen to the Trump administration, uh, scurrilous and the lowest of the low, but... Someone who didn't know, uh, a friend of yours said, Wait, what, do I, what, what, what am I to make of this guy, Wolf? What kind of journalist is he? What would you say? Wolf is not an unknown to the president. Wolf has been a fixture in media circles here in New York City for quite some time. A controversialist and a controversial one. Something of a performance artist. A guy who really loves uh, major figures, swashbucklers who uh, are figures of power and influence and money. Uh, He really gravitates towards those figures uh, with a kind of reverence and fascination as a moth to the flame. But to mix our our, uh, fauna metaphors, (laughs) a bit of a scorpion in a bottle. If he gets good information that will make a good story, he is unlikely to withhold it simply to protect the feelings of those uh, major titans of industry that he loves to chronicle. And, you know, take a a subject uh, you and I know well, uh, Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch was flat. Flattered by Wolf's attentions, uh, which had been stoked by a book that Wolf had written earlier about sort of the last of these great heroic titanic figures of industry that he had lionized in a book. He sort of made it clear to Murdoch that he saw Murdoch, the great news and media magnate, as one of those figures uh, and got incredible access. There were things in that book that Murdoch very much didn't really want out there. And Wolf was in no way inclined to withhold them simply because uh, Murdoch asked him not to. You know, the way Wolf tells the story, 
and some of this is chronicled in my own book on Murdoch, the New York Post, which is Murdoch controlled, went after Wolf's personal life, also messy, at a time he was involved with somebody other than his uh, now ex-wife. And uh, he was only able to get the New York Post to pull back from these gossip stories by threatening to release a raw audio tape of Murdoch's interviews with him, thus proving and underscoring what mm-hmm. uh, what the patriarch had said. So if Trump had just called his good buddy Rupert Murdoch and said, well, he wrote a book on you and you collaborated, how did it turn out for you, fella? Uh, he might have gotten uh, something very different than a letter of recommendation. So some of the stuff that you just said strikes me as a wily journalist, a hard-bitten journalist, what we would want out of a journalist, a journalist reporting without fear or favor, not beholden to his sources, but actually doing journalism as probably would be endorsed by a school of journalism. But Wolf doesn't always stick to that description, does he? No, I think it's actually in some ways a perfect fit. You've got a journalist without shame uh, reporting on a presidency whose core figure, the president himself, is without shame. Uh, And I think that they are in some ways nicely matched. So give Uh, me some examples of how Wolf has been without shame. Not the this is us snootily looking down on him as not adhering to the best practices, but real things that would maybe give the average person pause. I mean, look, it's one thing to uh, approach journalism differently than some of your peers. It's another thing to openly trash them, which Wolf certainly has done publicly uh, in their coverage of Trump, uh, very loudly proclaiming in a variety of platforms that they're not giving the president or even then candidate Trump a fair shot. You know, and and the way to think about this in some ways is I think it's somewhat true. I also think Wolf likes to set himself up as a contrarian. It sets his voice apart, whether he was a columnist at the GQ UK or at The Guardian or at USA Today or New York Magazine. Wherever he's been, he likes to set himself as having not only a strong voice but a differing voice. But it was also in some ways a full-page virtual ad uh, to – Trump and his circle, that here was at last a prominent, sympathetic voice in the media. By trashing more conventional reporters, by uh, slagging, you know, say the New York Times and the Washington Post and other places as hyperventilating, as somehow portraying Trump as aberrant, as violating norms, it gave him an in and an entree. But I think Trump has unshackled places like the New York Times from the propriety and the care and the, the even-handedness that at times characterizes some of their coverage in talking about Trump as a figure rather than about his policies. And so you're seeing a uh, much more open exploration, for example, of President Trump's fitness to hold office and his mental capacity unleashed in conventional news outlets, I think, by Wolf's uh, characterizations of concern among as he puts it, pretty much every person in this White House yeah, but about he, that very issue. He doesn't say every person. He says 100%, which is real wolfism. You know, there are no nuances and no shades. But going back to your point about the reporting that he did before this book, in the journalism world, there's something called a beat sweetener. You know you're going to be reporting on someone, so you kind of suck up to people. Wolf has more or less admitted this. This is a tactic. It may not be unethical, but I think about some of the pieces he wrote in Vanity Fair and this this interview and podcast he did with Digital day. This was uh, after the election, before Trump becomes president. He's asked about the, the New York Times and the mainstream media in general. My impression is that they are hunkering down. Um, they are maintaining this, this anti-Trump. Trump is a threat. They are taking the bait. I mean, he tweets and they go crazy. I think what is required is for the media to do its job. And I really 
deeply feel that the media hasn't done its job, has done its job badly, hasn't done its job, has often abdicated its, its responsibility, has lost itself somewhere. My big problem with Wolf's Trump reporting isn't his book. It's everything leading up to the book. If you read any Michael Wolf, you weren't reading even a pundit's honest opinions of what he thought. You were reading the tactics of a guy laying the groundwork to get in good with a source so that one day he could deliver the big hit on the source. And also, you know, and that would redound much to his financial benefit. There's one thing that Wolf says that gives me pause before just uh, slapping him around on this question. And that's that he said that he was perfectly interested in and willing to write a completely contrarian book about how good a job or how smart or how capable these people were. And it just was being disproved every hour of every day he spent <laughs> yes. there. Yes. You know, and I do think of Wolf as a contrarian. And if he could have pulled off that story, there would have been, I think, a lot of people around the country, uh, you know, in the 45 percent or whatever it was that voted for the president who would have been interested in buying that book, particularly now when there aren't a lot of people offering that narrative credibly. Far be it for me to make Wolf's case for him. But what he argues now is, look, what the president himself says in its accretion is incredibly damning. It's damning because it shows him incapable of focusing. It's damning because it shows him not having any mastery or really interest in any of the policies that he's suggesting radically reshaping. And it's damning because it suggests that he's uh, he's in some ways unfit for office and has compiled an administration of people who are really incapable of running uh, collectively the government and the country. And so he said, this wasn't the story I necessarily set out to tell. It's what presented itself to him. I've got to say that that may all well be true. And yet he seems to have had perfect pitch in positioning himself to get access. And he's of the belief that you get access to the powerful so that you can tell your story. You know, I think ultimately these quotations, uh, perhaps your Murdoch uh, conflation aside uh, about uh, moron and idiot, uh, are going to prove to be basically accurate. And I think that uh, that Wolf was able to inveigle himself into the White House and stuck around as much as possible. I mean, he told me he was planning on doing that before he did it, and he did, seems to have done exactly what he said. Uh, so I wish there was much more transparency in sourcing. You know, when I wrote a book, I had about 60 pages of footnotes he, or endnotes at the end of the book just to let people know how I knew what I knew when I didn't explain exactly how I got it in the text. Even if in certain circumstances it relied on people whose names I couldn't divulge, I'd explain roughly who they were and why. There's nothing like that in here. It's a narrative. But let's be clear. Michael Wolff is not the only person to do that. Bob Woodward, be honest, this lion of journalism celebrated, you know, all the president's men, all that. You know, Woodward in a lot of his books becomes a very hard to know where he gets information from. So if we chide Wolf for that, I think it's fair to. We should acknowledge that he's not uh, alone in that and that other people who are seemingly part of the journalism establishment uh, not standing quasi apart from it in the way that Wolf tries to, that some of them employ very similar uh, models on that. So maybe the case can be made that however reckless you think one thinks Michael Wolf is, perhaps the mainstream media has been too polite with their nuances and their to be sures and their some says. Wolf will say 100% of the people around Trump believe this. It's demonstrably untrue. He admitted he didn't uh, interview members of the cabinet. So you don't know that 100% of the people around Trump think he's unfit. But we like the statement in the extreme. It's sort of how Donald Trump speaks. Everyone says nobody knew it's the easiest thing in the world. It's, it's speaking very plainly, very clearly, without a lot of nuances. And maybe Donald Trump taught us what Michael Wolff is teaching us once again, that the public cottons to that sort of messaging. 
Yeah, and look, I think that he speaks. Uh, you know, what was that famous turn we were all quoting to each other uh, in the in the fall of 2016? You know, uh, take it seriously, not literally. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got uh, uh, hyperbole meeting excess. If you're going to sell a book as a bestseller, you might as well not speak in the most tempered terms. That's what Michael Wolff has decided, and he's riding it to the top of the bestseller list right now. Uh, I don't think that you have to interview every cabinet member to say that there is you know, serious concern at the top levels of government, including at Trump's inner circle about his fitness for the job, if that's what your reporting shows. Yeah. Well, uh, that's clearly, what you would say. That's what you did say. That's what the New York Times does say. What he says is 100 percent of the people around Trump think that he's unfit for office. The interesting story service he's provided to my mind in some ways is getting places like the New York Times and no doubt the Washington Post and others to inch toward a more honest and candid conversation of how the journalists who cover the place talk when they're off the air and not typing in front of a keyboard. Because there is no doubt that these are real things that he's reflecting. I just I can tell you that from talking to other reporters. It's just it's a real thing. And not all of them talk about whether or not he's got the mental acuity, but they may talk about whether he's got the psychological profile of somebody who can handle both the complexity of the issues he's presented with and the enormity of it. And I mean enormity in its real way, not just in terms of the scope, but in terms of the, 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 the direness of having to be president of the United States. And that's a real question. And you're seeing the New York Times take this stuff on in ways that they would kind of lightly pirouette around it uh, previously. You know, what Wolf is doing is he's putting in the mouths of people, we think, quoting, he says with tapes, people close to the president saying the things that the Times typically quotes out of government Democrats and liberals is saying. So that's a very different point of information to have. And the Times is now reflecting some of that as a result of this book, which its reporters on Twitter said previously said most of this stuff isn't new. And actually, it seems to me that is kind of new then, you know, that, 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 that the register of concern is much closer to the president than previously presented to the public. David Folkenflick is NPR's media correspondent. He is the author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. You might know that book from its Amazon page where customers who bought that item also bought Michael Wolff's book on Murdoch. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, David. Hey, you bet. And now the spiel. President Winfrey. Oprah, Oprah. How's that Oprah changey thing working out for you? Yet to Oprah, I do say no, bruh. Well, listen, that was a great speech last night at the Golden Globes. A wonderful speech. On the page, I read it. It seemed straightforward. The written words were unadorned. The flourishes that she gave it were mostly performative. And as befits a master communicator, she crushed it. So I want tonight to express gratitude to all the women who have endured years of abuse and assault because they, like my mother, had children to feed and bills to pay and dreams to pursue. So just let's talk about the speech a little bit. She starts by talking about herself as a small girl and then on a couple occasions relates her experience to the audiences in the room, but then also expands the message out to include the people watching at home. She was very inclusive. I noted she called out some pretty phenomenal men, made me feel good. Also, she associated her message with Rosa Parks. 
And that's a really persuasive technique. This is an icon. We all agree that Rosa Parks is an icon. So she's using what Rosa Parks meant, bending it a little bit and saying it's in keeping with her values to right now stand up in this Me Too moment. You know, it, it is in a way a big ask. It is a little bit of a societal rift to say we're standing up and not going to take it anymore. That seems radical. So if you associate yourself with something that's familiar and that we all agree is right, that's how to make change go down easier. Like I said, it was great communication. It was a great speech, but I just don't think she should be president. Look, if the criteria is, would she be better than Trump? Yes, she would. So would Montel Williams, Ricky Lake, Gabrielle Carteris. And I understand the yearning for Oprah. She's high-minded, inspirational, aspirational, uplifting. She is a black woman, all opposites of Trump. But it's the thing that she has in common with him that gives me pause. She's a performer, a showwoman, a political neophyte, a gabillionaire. She is a celebrity. And is the right lesson of the Trump presidency, hey, let's stick with someone with no experience so long as we know them already. Trump was a disaster, but he taught us one thing. We need a celebrity there. Yes, yes, yes. Ronald Reagan was a famous actor, but he was also a successful governor of the biggest state in the union. Al Franken wanted to be a politician, so he ran for Senate. Uh, Bob Corker is leaving. It's not too late for Oprah to establish residency in her home state of Tennessee. I also believe that the quality, one quality of a really good politician is struggle. They're not just their lives, but their day in day out existence should be to some extent marked by struggle. They all emphasize the struggle in their biographies. I was the son of a milkman. I was the son of a coal miner. I was the son of a former president. But, you know, I wasn't snooty like him. But I'm looking for the day-to-day struggle. When was the last time Oprah was stymied in trying to get what she wanted? When did she have a goal thwarted? I'm not just saying, hey, Oprah's rich. Life's easy for her. FDR and Kennedy were rich. One was a great president. The other was a good president. It's not what I'm saying. I mean, when was the last time Oprah worked really hard and got only 70% of what she was after or cut a deal that wasn't great but was just good enough or lived to fight another day? These are all things we need from a politician. I don't know that Oprah's done it, not in the last 20 years. Today, CNN's reporting. Here, here, I'll read the headline. Sources. Oh, that's always good. Oprah Winfrey's actively thinking about running for president. It's tantalizing. But the speech, as wonderful as it was, was speaking to a very receptive audience in a very receptive mood. The electorate is not that audience. The electorate, the swing electorate, the people who decide elections, are mostly disaffected white people who don't put sexual harassment as one of their top five concerns. Yes, I know, Oprah has great appeal to all demographics, but the people she'd have to convince want better jobs. I don't know if Oprah is cynical enough to promise them better jobs. I think we demand that our politicians go out there and offer hope, even if it's a false hope, a pretty specific false hope. I could see Oprah saying, uh, if your job doesn't come back, here are some ways to cope with it mentally or spiritually. It's not what we want out of a politician. It seems off-brand for Oprah to tell an out-of-work machinist, don't worry, we're getting your job back from China. Maybe she could do it. I, I don't put it past the powers of Oprah. But here's another thing that Oprah has never done that politicians have to do in the American system. You have to cut down a rival. You have to cut down a rival just enough to hurt, but not enough to destroy. Like how Barack Obama said Hillary was likable enough. 
So if Elizabeth Warren or Kirsten Gillibrand run against Oprah, do you think she'll be able to incisively critique their records, tear them down a bit, and then put herself forward as the logical alternative? Maybe. The woman has great communication skills, a lot of savvy, but what I'm talking about is different from anything she's ever done in public life. In order to run, she also has to imagine this situation. There's a Democratic primary. There's a debate stage. On one side's Cory Booker. On another side's Elizabeth Warren. Also up there, let's throw Bernie Sanders. Is Oprah Winfrey really eager to make the case, you're better off with me than with them? I think it's, in fact, maybe to her credit as a person that she defers to experts. To her discredit, those experts are sometimes Drs. Oz or Phil. But deferring... And admitting that they know more than I do is something that she does. It's something that it's right to do. It's not something we want our politicians to do. Obviously, Oprah has some great talents and some sharp instincts as a businesswoman. But we're seeing day after day the limits of how those particular skills map onto the political world. And really, I know when we think about Trump, we think about his lack of character. But his lack of knowledge hurts a lot. Oprah is obviously smarter. She's obviously more curious. She does and can read. She had a pretty successful book club. And you don't have to be an expert in every area of public policy. But some, some you should be. So I guess some people hearing this will think, well, think about Hillary Clinton. She had the greatest resume. Well, maybe Buchanan did, but one of the best resumes of anyone ever to run for president. She could have been the best student ever to run for president. She had as much knowledge as you could ever hope for a person to have. And look what good it did her. Yes, but that's in getting elected. I think it would have served her really well as the president. The presidency is enormously complicated. We do this thing as citizens where... We say, and I do believe that we want our leaders to be smart and knowledgeable, but what does that mean and how does that show up? Here's how I think we enforce that criteria with our votes. We only punish politicians on the smart and knowledgeable rubric if they're demonstrably less smart or knowledgeable than we are. So when George W. Bush didn't know the president of Greece, we kind of said, well, neither do I. But when Trump doesn't know what the word consensual is, we roll our eyes and say, well, I'm not as stupid as that. But I have a higher standard than just smarter than me. I want a real expert in that seat. Yes, I want someone of great character and persuasiveness, but I also want someone possessing great expertise. And if you think Oprah's abilities, her gifts, to be frank, mean that she has the required expertise, then I don't think you understand the presidency. Then again, neither does the current incumbent. So if that's the criteria, could she beat Trump? I think so. Can she get the nomination? Well, America proved we'd vote for a candidate who's never done it before. But I just don't think she'd be as good a president as America deserves. And I don't think Oprah would like it. She's someone who likes to live her best life after all. Yes, I am saying, and this is possibly the most patriotic thing I've ever said, possibly the most unrealistically pro-American thing I've ever said, but I'm saying America can do better than Oprah Winfrey as president. And it's not a proper refutation to simply say, yeah, well, we can't do any worse than Trump. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who is floating the notion Jenny Jones is sec death. Daniel Schrader helped produce the gist today. He backs Tempest Bledsoe as a writing candidate. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, 
has been pondering the draft Mike Douglas movement, as impractical as that may seem. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has got it. Carney Wilson. Wait, she hosted a talk show? You too could be a guest on our show if you have an incredible wedding or honeymoon horror story. All you have to do. Did she say wedding horror stories? The gist we missed the ticket. It was during the 80s. We had Wapner and we blew it. Umpru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>